0: but I knew instantly that things weren't right. Um, she asked me to come over and she, so she really embraced me and gave me a really meaningful, you know, I can still feel it to this day, the hug, man. Because yeah, wow, wow. I knew, well, little did I know that was going to be the last ever hug. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... Not long after, you know, she she looked at me and we, we spoke, and she said that she was really proud, and mm. she made the best decision of her life to adopt me, and she's proud to see where I've come from to who I was then, and you know, for me to look after my brother, and 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 she, I remember her last words, you know, make the most of every opportunity you get. Wow. That's why we adopted you. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, but was be- it,
1: I was just going to say, is that is that a real like spark or an anchor for you? That moment just to go like, wow, like. This woman has brought me over from the Philippines, and in her last word, she said, make the most of every opportunity, and you yep. kind of hold that true in your heart to, to go forward from that.
0: I live and breathe by those words every day. Fantastic. Test, how's that for you, girl?
1: Hello. Welcome to another episode of Going Pro, and we have a special guest today, Daniel Buberis. Just want to read out a little bit about what you've done because I feel like you have a long itinerary here of of what you've what you've done and what you're continually doing, and I think um, yeah, you're going to provide a lot of value for our listeners today. So you started out with a, as being a rehab assistant and business administration for Port Adelaide Football Club. You've been the senior strength and conditioning coach at Sturt Football Club. You've been the strength and conditioning coach at the South Australian Sport Institute. You've been involved in Tennis Australia as the professional men's and Australian Davis Cup senior physical performance coach, which is quite an achievement. You've worked in the National Academy senior physical performance as a coach. You've been the athletic development and rehab coordinator at Port Adelaide Football Club, medical rehab manager at Glenelg Football Club. You've started your own your own foundation helping disadvantaged kids in the Philippines which I'm really uh, really, pa- I'm really keen to talk about because I know you're super passionate about it. I think there's going to be some some awesome takeaways from that. And currently, you're the national men's beach volleyball physical preparation coach.
0: Bit of an mouthful there, mate. Yeah.
1: Yeah, far out. There's a, a long <laughs> list. I feel like that, that's a podcast in, in itself. So, welcome. Thanks for being here with us.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Luke. Um, I'm really excited to be here, mate. So, thanks for the opportunity. Um, yeah, it seems like I've done a fair bit in that period of time and a lot of. Variety and variation, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and yeah, you're, you're one that came to my mind when we started this podcast. I uh, had a little bit to do with you uh, through a mutual friend, Lee, and uh, Eddie Winter, who's um, currently playing on the ITF and Challenger Circuit. So just being around you, uh, I loved your positive energy. You are someone that was always trying to get the most out of your athletes that you're working with. Um I could just tell you're someone that really wanted to provide a good service and help people. So for me, it was just a no-brainer to to really um, hear about your story and, and see what value you could provide for our listeners or anyone that is listening to this podcast. So I guess w- where I want to start is um, you have a really interesting journey. You grew up in Wyala and you were adopted from two parents um, that are from Wyala and they brought you over. Uh, where where did you where did you grow up? Uh, where did you come from? In um, was it in in the Philippines? Philippines, in Philippines yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I want to find out a little bit more about what it was like for you in that time growing up there, because I'm, I'm guessing it would have been quite different, um, and you would have been culturally quite different to a lot of people growing up in Waila at the time.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting one, mate. Because uh, you know, it's it's one of those situations where you don't really reflect on it until you probably get a little bit older in life. Um, partly because you've had so many experiences, and I think now that my circumstances have changed with having a family and, and particularly a young son, now you, you sort of by virtue of that reflect a little bit on the past because I think that's quite important in terms of how you support and and and. And encourage your son as well mm. um, and for me I was adopted um, in 1981 as a four and a half year old from the Philippines mm. in Manila in a province called Quezon City which is about an hour and a half from Manila City and I was adopted by an Australian couple, uh, Peter and uh, Judy Buberis um, who were both from Wayala um, and obviously became my adoptive parents. Um, my mother Judy was a hairdresser um, and also an avid netballer and um, sports person all around. And, and my father was uh, a reasonably good country footballer and, and enjoyed his other sports in cricket and fishing. And and he actually grew up in um, Port Lincoln. Um, so he came from a very rich, I guess, family, fishing family. And um, he became a lawyer and moved to WA to set up his practice. And, and my mother, who was from Adelaide, um, and I think that's where my father met my mother was in Adelaide, and then they decided to move to Whyalla. And it was around that point, um, after not long after they got married, that they discovered that my mother, adoptive mother Judy, couldn't have children. Unfortunately, her children of her own. Uh, and it wasn't until one of her or one of Dad's best mates suggested the idea of perhaps adopting at that time. And look, I, I don't really understand what the landscape, or or perhaps the the word probably you know the the, the perception around adoption at Mm -hmm. that point in time given that it was very early 80s coming out of the 70s there was a big migration shift uh, particularly from the southeast asian countries that were particularly going through conflict with vietnam war and Mm -hmm. and what have you and and around cambodia of course so there was a you know there was this sort of movement of of migration from those areas and adoption was certainly um was becoming a little bit more prevalent in some respects and you may argue there was a bit of a stigma involved to it um, and, and culturally it was relatively new to Australia whilst Australia was to having a big European migration post-World War, the idea of having a, a large migration from Southeast Asia probably wasn't as um, forthcoming or ex- widely accepted. Now, that might be a bit of a generalisation. So, the idea of adopting from Southeast Asia probably wasn't necessarily on the radar immediately with my parents. Um and it was only years later that I did find out that my uh, dad's best mate, Peter, also named Peter, uh, suggested the Philippines, just partly because, well, in fact, several Southeast Asian countries. Um, and my understanding is at that point that parents felt inclined to adopt from there, partly maybe because of the the poverty that was, you know, um, that they were experiencing, um, very much a third world or somewhat third world developing countries. Um, and you know there were a lot of um, adopted kids or orphan kids, so I think they probably felt compelled through compassion more than anything, and the need for my, I guess my mother and my dad to, uh, you know, have a son of their own or a child of their own. So they made that decision to adopt from the Philippines of, of the other countries, which I understand might have been Cambodia and, and Korea potentially. Um, so so. You know, they started that process, um, and and by the way, all this information I've only just recently found out in terms of how that all sort of came about, just through previous documentation. Is there any reason why you didn't? Uh, you just you didn't want to know, or well, that, that's probably I can talk a bit more about that down the track. But for me, it's interesting because being adopted when I was growing up, and it depends on how you look at it. You know, I was brought into a, a, a completely different culture from you know different part of the world. Um, didn't speak a language, I was malnourished, certainly very young um, and here I was in a country town like Waiala, that was a very much a blue-collar town, course, BHP's yeah. based there and, and you know, dare I say, very white um, mm-hmm. and, you know, being one of the very few minority um, ethnic backgrounds, uh, I didn't think any different at that point in time because, you know, I was only four, three and a, four and a half, five years old, so...
1: This is just a quick note on our podcast sponsor. This podcast would not be possible without the support from 4RT. They are a creative house that helps businesses with their advertising, marketing and content needs. If your business has a story to tell, then these guys can really help you with that story. And through ATA, they've helped us massively and we trust these guys dearly and we feel like they're the best in the business. So they could add a lot of value to your marketing and advertising needs.
0: I think the whole idea of... um the parents adopting was was to sort of have that experience of you know supporting a young kid from a different country given the life that perhaps he would not otherwise have Mm. through his unfortunate circumstances um and so so that opportunity to bring me into that environment was there um and you know it's funny because i went through that period in life and just getting back to that point earlier was i never really connected with the philippines um And I went all through junior school, high school, even early university, not really having a connection or I guess a desire or want for that matter. And like I said from the beginning, it wasn't really until I had my son or got married that I started to really reflect on my heritage as such. Um, And I was going through this sort of phase of identity um, and, you know, that identity was brought about the opportunities that I've had in life and how I came about to where I am now, and mm. and you know I was, I was living a pretty good life, and, and I've had a good life. Um, there's certainly no complaints about it. Um, a privileged life, if you will, if if you you know if you're talking in context with my previous life. So for me, that forced me to sort of reflect a bit. Um, and so yeah, I guess in the last probably five years, I've really. Been on this journey um, of, of self-discovery, um, trying to really connect with my heritage, and feel a uh, internally, try and f- find a level of comfort, um, mm-hmm. contentment, if you will. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, there is a there is a purpose behind it, and, and that purpose is to, uh, I guess, build this catalog of information that I never had uh, or I had knowledge of, because uh, um, there was this sort of gaping hole early on in my life that I had absolutely no understanding and that that's who my biological parents are, what were the circumstances behind it. And so for me, it's about understanding that so I can actually pass that on to my son. I think it's very important, not just for my son, but I guess in general that you know your, your future children or your, your children should have a, an understanding of your parents' background because it's how we develop as humans how we build our own identity Um, like yourself no doubt you'd speak to your parents and they'd always tell you about their grandparents or their parents and their grandparents Mm -hmm. about the heritage and and, and it's it's who we are Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me this was just an opportunity a very good opportunity to sort of explore that a little bit more but also I guess unearth and perhaps rediscover some you know, past information that I wasn't aware of just to sort of put the puzzles together. Uh, And I'm still going through that journey and that process. But it's an exciting one, you know, because I don't feel any anxiety around it. I I certainly feel a level of uh, anticipation in terms of what what can be or what can come of this. But also I am protective of my own emotions in that I could be led to some disappointment. Um, And and I sometimes wonder how will I deal with that if, if one day I do decide to find my biological parents mm-hmm. um how, how might i manage my emotions in that state so there are nones at the moment but it's exciting and, and and that i think is a really important part of who i am in terms of you know finding purpose in life mm-hmm. um it has given me more more of an outlook more of a positive outlook um around the whys of why am i here mm-hmm. type thing and these are all sort of you know deep-hearted conversations but I guess, you know, this has all been accentuated over the years partly because of my family and my son. So, um, so you know, and, and a lot of the experiences I've had in the past have, have, have shaped a lot of where I am today, as, as with most people. Um, and and it's all about, I guess, finding meaning as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, and, and, and really from there, it's then honouring that, Um, And, you know, it's funny because I I, I guess a lot of what I'm going through isn't too unfamiliar with a lot of adoptees uh, and a lot of it is about finding identity. Um, It's also realising or which is, I guess, being activated by the opportunities you've had in life because you you do realise that when you do or when you are adopted that you you are given and presented with many opportunities uh, because you are adopted by by wealthy people or by well-off people um, who come from, um, you know, quite middle-class families. So you, you you are going to be presented with opportunities in life. As simple and as easy as it may sound, it, it, it's, it's not um, because you've been removed from a, a cultural environment that you were born in to then into an environment that is culturally different um, and and you do stand out as the different person. and. I think for me, and I'm not looking for petty here, but for me, I knew I knew I was different. Yeah. Um, I only need to look back at a lot of my school photos, and I was the only Asian kid there, or let alone the only Asian adopted kid uh, amongst all of my friends. So, but I, I use a lot of these experiences and analogies to sort of try and instil in my athletes because you know, whilst whilst they're on different levels of the spectrum, there are parallels in terms of. Athletes trying to find identity of who they are as an athlete, um, but also encouraging athletes to realise the opportunities that they've been given, and you know learn to value those opportunities. Um, and I think that's what really drives us or drives athletes is that you know once they sort of discover that, and that discovery just doesn't happen overnight. It's a, it's a long process, um, but. It's also a process of direction and, and support and, and attention with that particular athlete to help nurture them through that because the penny does drop, um, particularly for those that are in stable environments, um, that, that they do realise suddenly I have this wonderful opportunity, I'm going to make the most of it and, and it, it can quite literally turn overnight and suddenly athletes have these little bursts of uh, performance outcomes that um, just elevate them. To the next level and you see that a lot you see that a lot and each each to their own each has their own triggers and, and reasonings um and i think really i guess in my role these days it's it's more about identifying that with the athlete and then nurturing that and then working with that along with their team whether it's in a individual team ie tennis or, or as, a, as a collective team as in a football team so um so yeah I've, I've used a lot of my experiences particularly in the last five six years to really sort of connect my experiences to what perhaps the the athlete is going through um and for me that builds a, a, a really good relationship i think it also allows me to be a little bit vulnerable to the athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Show, show, show them. Important. It is, yeah. Uh, to show the more humanistic side and yeah. to not only the humanistic side of the relationship but the humanistic side of the journey of trying to become an, an elite athlete because it's not all, um, you know, it, it, it's not a straight road. It's certainly not a straight road at all. And Yeah. So um, – yeah, so it's it's an interesting one, and and look, I think with my early experiences growing up, you know, we talk about a whole heap of things around building resilience and building confidence and self efficacy, you know, belief in your skill, uh, building confidence, um, and and yeah, I guess ultimately what it is, it's somehow trying to socially fit into a particularly demographics, um, whether that's in a sporting population or whether it's just in a normal workplace or school or university population. So for me, you know, I I went through that process sort of blindfolded, to be honest, I think as most kids do. Um, And I think you do get to an age um, where the the realisation of what's actually happening around you starts to become a little bit more prevalent and you start to actually really start to connect Mm. Um, And look, I I sadly lost my adoptive mother when I was 13. Yeah, okay. So having moved from Waiala after living there for four or five years, we moved to Adelaide Mm -hmm. Um, and I started uh, at Glen Oldman Primary School there. Um, uh, Well, it might have been year four. Um, And then I went to Ross Trevor College up there in the eastern suburbs, just on the foothills there. Mm -hmm. And... I went to that school park because my father was an old scholar there. Um, it was also very much a a, uh, a school, a sporting school, had a very rich history of sporting success, particularly with Australian football, footy. Um, and my father was very well established at the school, having been an old scholar, but also being involved in sports committees and and then um, on the school board when I started at Ross Trevor. So uh, I started there in eighty eight. Um, and by 1990, uh, my mother passed away. or 1991, she passed away with cancer. I, I, um, I was in year eight, um, and it wasn't again until years later I found out she would actually was diagnosed with cancer when I was in year six. So, okay, yeah. but, but how, at,
1: I was just going to say, how did you navigate that at a, as a, a young teenager?
0: Yeah, look, um, you know, as a young teenager, you know, I was I was very much Heavily involved in sport at that time. Um,
1: did that almost like save you? Is it like a, a, absolutely. a way to get through that?
0: Yeah, absolutely, it did. Uh, it, it, in the most simplest form, it was a distraction, mm-hmm. but it was more or less delaying the inevitable. Yeah. Um, but for me, that distraction was great. Um, and it kept me focused, it kept me integrated with a social group, um, it allowed me to develop really strong friendships, it allowed me to adopt some great skills. Um, it allowed me to apply myself physically um, and, you know, I, I enjoyed it um, and, you know, I have my father to thank for that because he himself was a bit of a fitness fanatic but he obviously came from a, you know, a bit of a sporting background himself so he was very encouraging, um, not, not overwhelmingly um, possessive in terms of, you know, taking ownership of my sporting yeah. career but more or less um, he pushed me, no doubt. Um, but he also taught me some really valuable lessons. But during all of that, when my mother passed away, um, yeah, yeah, look, it was a confusing moment. Um, and one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that I've also got an adoptive brother also from the Philippines, uh, Tom, who's seven years younger than I was, Yeah, I am. And so there was a big age discrepancy uh, or age gap, I should say, um, between uh, myself and my brother, Tom. And, and then my father. So, you know, we were living up in Crayfords at the time and mum passed away sadly. Um, and I'll never forget that day because I think that day was a really turning point in terms of starting to realise who I was mm. um, because I just lost, a, in my mind, another mother. Yeah. Um, so I felt empty, emotionally empty. I felt disconnected. Um, and I'll never forget because uh, I was actually um, at home With a really good mate of mine and my mother was down at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and she uh, I get this phone call and she'd been in hospital for some time now and she actually had a relapse um, from breast cancer and and she had just got back from an overseas trip and the trip was cut off because uh, she had this went back into uh, relapse I guess with the cancer that had sort of re-emerged and so uh, which started this dramatic decline in her health and so she was in the hospital for a considerable amount of time and I was at home and my father rang me and he said, look, you know, you need to come down and so I did um, on my own and I remember walking onto the seventh floor, uh, fifth floor of the Royal Adelaide Hospital late in the afternoon and seeing her, you know, in bed and it was only a couple of days before that I'd seen her and she was actually quite sprightly up uh, and yeah, about and she, she, you know, she was quite engaging and... um but I knew instantly that things weren't right. Um, she asked me to come over and she so she really embraced me and gave me a really meaningful, and, you know, I can still feel it to this day, the hug, man. Yeah, it's, wow, wow. Because I knew, well, little did I know that was going to be the last ever hug. Yeah. Um, and... Not long after, you know, she she looked at me and we, we spoke, and she said that she was really proud, and mm. she made the best decision of her life to adopt me, and she's proud to see where I've come from to who I was then, and you know, for me to look after my brother, and 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 she, I remember her last words, you know, make the most of every opportunity you get. Wow. That's why we adopted you. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, but was be- it,
1: I was just going to say, is that is that a real like spark or an anchor for you? That moment just to go like, wow, like. This woman has brought me over from the Philippines, and in her last words, she said, "Make the most of every opportunity." And you yep. kind of hold that true in your heart to to go forward from there. I live and
0: breathe by those words every day. Fantastic. And I've I've, I've learned to take those opportunities. Yeah. Um, I've I've learned not to fear failure, mm-hmm. to accept it. I've learned to get up when you get knocked down. I've learned to be myself over the years, um, but more importantly, I've also learnt that. Um, life is so valuable, mm-hmm. uh, and it can be taken away in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, but I've also learned that life does throw some massive challenges at you, and and you can't get through life on your own. And you know, when she passed away, she moments after that, she I I, I uh, she she was quite thirsty, and I I gave her a sip of Pepsi, which of all things probably wasn't the ideal thing, and. She took that and started to, you know, uh, experience this, I don't know, she just sort of r- rapidly declined mm. months later and, and then within 20 minutes she passed away. Mm. As a 12, 13-year-old, 13-year-old, um, you just don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, you got to understand Google wasn't around then, so it's yeah. not like we had – you know, the information for what cancer is and the effects of cancer at our fingertips, you know, it was relatively new on a public scale in terms of information coming out of what breast cancer is and the effects of it and, and the treatments. The treatments obviously were quite quite new at the time compared to what it is these days. So, you know, in terms of early diagnosis or even just early um, uh, identification, those, those measures weren't necessarily in place at that point. So. These were all things, you know. I just couldn't get my head around when it all happened. Like suddenly she was there, and suddenly she's not, and suddenly I'm without a mother. So, you know, I, I, I remember the day after everything just felt really surreal. My father and I went for this huge walk around the Adelaide Hills, and and Dad was fantastic. You know, he put his arm around me and said, "You know, we'll, we'll get through this. You're young," um, and, and and he was really empathetic. Uh, but he was also obviously torn himself. Um, now he's got two adopted kids or two kids of his own that he has to now look after. Mm-hmm. So, And we were pretty lucky. We, we, my dad's got a relatively close family and so we had a lot of support and particularly mum's friends and my school friends. So, you know, through that period alone, whilst it was quite difficult, um, I felt very supported. Mm-hmm. But in saying that, things, I guess, started to manifest in terms of who I was and, you know, I went through this really angry phase. Yeah, um, I became just like angry at the
1: world of just like, "Why is this happening?" And
0: yeah, angry because I didn't know what was yeah going on or what everything meant, and and you know, I, I felt whether you know, and I'm, I certainly don't point the finger at my dad, but I just felt perhaps emotionally there wasn't an avenue there to talk to anyone in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My deepest concerns concerns were probably more through no than anything about, you know, what does this all mean? So Especially in
1: that time as yeah, well. Like yeah. that time it would have been really like taboo to start talking about this sort of stuff and wouldn't have been so readily available. Whereas now it's, I think it's changing a lot where it's starting to become a lot more su- acceptable
0: yeah, to talk right. about
1: these things and there's people there to, to open up to and it's, um, I would say, a little bit easier for some people to navigate if yeah. they're going through that.
0: No, you make a really good point there because I feel I can talk to anyone at yeah. that point and no doubt there were people there that would have been willing to chat but I just felt – I don't know. I became very closed off. certainly became very angry. Yeah. But in saying that, sport provided me that avenue, that distraction, um, and I gave it everything I had, and that was my saviour. To be honest, Amazing. I I built some really good friendships. Um, you know, I was okay at sport, and you know, I just wanted to do the best. And and you know, and as sad as it may sound, you don't want tragedy to be the one that ignites your passion and your your purpose in life. But for me, I it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and it, it it does to everyone else that's gone through that experience, tragic experience in in their own way. But for yeah. me, I felt I have to make the most of this now. Mm. I, I really do. Um, and I just committed to becoming the best, best, uh, best at what I could do uh, from a sporting sense. I, I was I was okay at footy and I made the footy team. And you know I really want to do that. But fortunately for me. After high school, that was where it was going to stop because clearly the AFL wasn't going to take a four foot three, yeah, four three, four three is a little stump. But anyway, it's uh, another story. <laughs> um but, uh, So I had, you know, and and it's funny because I I I really embraced sport. I really thought I was a chance back then of, of playing AFL. Mm-hmm. I mean you got to understand the average height of an AFL player probably isn't as tall or was as tall as it is now. I mean, a midfielder is 195 centimetres on average and a midfielder back then was about 172, 170. So I thought I was in little chance. So um, once the, the, that little flame was uh, extinguished, uh, which was relatively soon after school, I I was lost. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I talk about athletes uh, who are, or talk to athletes that are lost today um and and what really resonates with me and probably was is it was a really powerful reminder was that football back then was my identity mm. so when a player gets injured now and is removed from the training environment they somewhat momentarily lose their identity yeah. Yeah. and I think it's hard to for them to grasp that at a point in time particularly high level athletes are getting paid you know considerable amounts of money and and also rely heavily on on, on that as their career, you understand how it can happen. And, you know, I'm only really talking in a sporting sense. Um, but, yeah, once you remove yourself from something that you you love, that's something that you've become connected to that somewhat builds your identity or, you, mm. you know, you're related to or you're associated to and but suddenly you're removed from it in, in the sense that your, your capacity to be able to, to engage in it is somewhat now been forcibly stopped yeah. um, for whatever reason is hard. You
1: see that time and time again just with athletes when they go through maybe like a really tough injury and that it's been their whole life and as soon as it happens it's like they don't know what to do they don't know who they are and I guess um, part of the solution is is not defining yourself through the sport and in I guess finding more purpose and direction outside of sport and then channeling that into, into what you're doing um, which is what it sounds like, what you do for for your athletes through you, the experiences and the upbringing that you've had.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 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 that, that's a really delicate, sensitive process now, particularly mm-hmm. in this day and age. Yeah. Uh, and then it's more to do with the messaging and. Probably just a style of communication too. Um, you know, I think by virtue, and, and and I'm not just talking from a strength and conditioning coach and, coaching in general. I think now you have to become a bit more of a nurturing based yes. coach, or you know, uh, a relationship. Certainly, that's probably the buzzword is a relationship based coach, mm-hmm. where you're, you're building really strong understanding of your athletes through trust yeah. uh, and mutual understanding. Um, and also allowing the athlete to build autonomy to make their own decisions as well, but also understanding that there's an obligation there and responsibility to the team, mm-hmm. and, and whether that's with you as a coach or with the actual team. Versus, you know, back then it was very command style, authoritarian style. Yeah, yeah it's changing a lot. Um, yeah, and it's very direct, mm-hmm. um, and I think we're quite, you know, quite dismissive a lot of the stuff, and more often than not. That type of discussion wasn't necessarily accepted in a sporting environment. To deal with in your own time type mentality. Whereas now that's now widely accepted as part of your your uh, holistic approach mm. to pro- performance is to yeah. you know let's talk about it in the sporting environment. Let's bring it into the workplace and let's talk about it because what you do here is is going to directly impact in how you perform on the court or on the field. So. You know, it's, it's, it's great, I think, absolutely. Um, I just still think we've got a long way to go. Um, there's still a lot of athletes uh, that struggle a lot of the time with that, whether they're equipped with the, the skill set to manage it through their own personal experiences with their families or within their families or their own uh, network of friends and, and support. But ultimately when an, an athlete comes into an environment, um, you know, the process these days is is to sit them down and have a really meaningful chat about what they want in life and you know what what drives them and you know you're really sort of digging deep into terms of why are you here and what is it that you really want. So, is
1: is that your starting point when you work with someone to really just get a sense of why are we here together? What's what do you want out of this? What are your goals? What are your visions? And and how can we um, create a map to to get there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I Look. And I think by my own nature, uh, depends on who you talk to, I'd like to think I'm a genuinely caring guy. Well, that comes through. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Very authentically. Yeah, and I I, I, I make a really conservative effort to show compassion Mm. because I know what it's like to not have compassion. I know what it's like to not feel cared for um, and that really drives me. That Mm. that makes me want to really engage in that. I want to know you, man. Yeah. And I'm not saying that. I, I really want to have a, a really cool conversation about who you are, what you are, because you've got a really fascinating story. Everyone has a fascinating story, um, and and a lot of those stories are, are the reasons why you, you're here in front of us, mm-hmm. in front of me, about to engage in something that you really love at, at the highest possible level. So let, let's talk about it. Let's chat about it. And, and you know, you listen with intent, and you listen with a really open mind about who that individual is, and. This is all about the power of connection, um, and you know, I also, like I said from the start, is, is you know I allow them to have a bit of an understanding of who I am. Mm. I think that's really important, not just from a um, from a coaching perspective. You know, these are my standards and this and that. That's all pretty much standard stuff. But you know, what adds a more pertinent layer to that where the athlete may think this guy's genuinely serious about me is i'll explain to them look you know this is my situation the reason i'm here today is because of and it's not about me by the way but it's more about i'm on the same trajectory as you are in terms of trying to achieve the best you possibly can through physics. i'm here to help you you know and i'll give everything i possibly have to help you
1: yeah i'm hearing you i feel like that's when you can actually make some really good breakthroughs with when working some with someone when you're vulnerable when you're really sharing some personal things and you're listening and you actually care about them and that comes through and they feel that trust, mm. that's when you can start to have some of the the breakthroughs where they they realise something about themselves or a pattern that they're repeating that they can actually change. And I think the coaching player relationship starting to change where it's just creating a space for that to happen naturally and not, not forcing anything or commanding as much and being um, very authori- authoritative. Like it has been in the past.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, look, it is a skill set, I think. Um, I think it's also the morphology of the individual as well in terms of, uh, you know, what their makeup is. And, you know, we're not psychologists, certainly not that, but what we are and what we need to be a a good listeners as coaches. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm in a really fortunate and privileged role because I'm sort of the middle person between the coach and the players. So you know, if I build that trust early with a player, more often than not, they're going to talk to you about their biggest concerns about performance, or or something perhaps even more deeper than that. And so you know, when you're talking to the coach, you may be able to provide some level of input in terms of the vulnerabilities of that athlete, Mm -hmm. the strengths and weaknesses. And if not, the opportunities that those athletes actually present. And and this may just add to the coach having a little bit more of a broader understanding because, I mean, you've got to understand, particularly in teams, the coach has a huge responsibility um, uh, tactically and technically and and then obviously trying to balance the, 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 the emotional stability of the team to actually perform and do what they're required to do and that's ultimately win. So... The coach is, is preoccupied with that, but whatever information through the relationship, the trust that I have with the athlete, mm-hmm. I can pass that on mm-hmm. perhaps as a tool to help that coach connect or at least understand how they may approach that particular athlete that may, may well be struggling or may well just sometimes need to kick up the pants. And, you know, that's, that's been really, as they say, emotionally intelligent to, yeah. or emotionally engaged, if you will, uh, to, to what's going on. Look, don't get me wrong. You still got to have a strong fundamental uh, core set of values yeah. about how you want to perform and how you want to coach. Yeah, right? Absolutely. So there are certainly limitations. It's more to do with the bandwidth of allowance of mm-hmm. what you're actually willing to to work with, but also what are you willing not to. And look, I'll, I'll put my I'm the first to put my hand up. Sometimes that bandwidth gets quite stretched stretched yeah <laughs> absolutely finding that balance
1: and uh, working with that bandwidth is is quite challenging because especially when you're coming from a, a empathetic and compassionate place mm. and, and mm. someone's maybe not meeting those standards it's sometimes you do have to give the kick up the ass but how do you do, how do you actually give that kick up the ass um, and there's a there's a way that to deliver that that bent depending on who you're dealing with uh, and that needs to be taken into consideration.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so, from all these experiences, you got yourself into a really good gig working with the Australian Davis Cup team. So, how did that all come about? And I'd love to just know about that whole experience and, and what it was like working with Australia's best tennis players and being in that in that in that in that pocket.
0: Yeah. When it started to happen, and what I mean by start, when the discussion started to happen that I was going to get involved with the Davis Cup, for me it was it was an awesome opportunity for starters. Um, but in saying that, you know, it was probably a product of many years of hard work and hard work around building a skill set that was conducive to being able to support athletes at the top end and, and you know, I didn't set out to have a career in tennis i really didn't i what i did set out though is to work with high performance athletes for them to be part of something special whether it's winning a championships grand finals grand slam whatever the sport is so for me um when i started at tennis australia back in 2011 and i just came from sassy um and i'd like tennis um and the opportunity at that particular time was more around do the best I could, and with that opportunities will present itself. So for me, it was I guess essentially core business. Um, you know, connect with the athletes, do the programming, lead the athletes, um, and and do do that to the best of my. Capacity and and abilities, Um, and by virtue of that, over time, I was then you know um, given the opportunity to move to Melbourne to um, fill the role of the National Academy because and that was what 2013 it might have been. The AIS had sort of decommissioned, or should say, I shouldn't say decommissioned, more or less, sort of restructured a lot of the um, support platforms for some of the major sports, particularly tennis the AIS program for both men and women was based out of Canberra um the AIS at that particular point decided to put the onus back on the NSOs the national sporting organizations to take responsibility for running their own high performance um, um performance functions um and so by virtue of that the opportunity came up to sort of fill that role with Tennis Australia out of um out of Melbourne Park, mm-hmm. so uh, my family and I we moved over to Melbourne, and I started working immediately with Alex Bolton, Luke Saville. I'd, I'd previously worked with Luke, being a South Australian. He'd, he'd come over to Adelaide every now and then. I'd, I'd worked with him as well, um, and, then, and then obviously Finassi was over there. He had a little bit of a different setup, um, and then Nick to some degree. So all these athletes that were part of the AIS program um, had moved over to Melbourne. Where the National Tennis Academy uh, was I guess formally set up um, both for the boys and girls or men and women um, and so after about a year or two um, uh, Aaron Kellett, who was my direct supervisor at the time um, you know it was a great support to me he um, he'd been involved in the strain cricket team academy and so he had a wealth of experience and knowledge and we had a really good working relationship and he was actually working in the Davis Cup space at that particular time Um, and then there was a bit of a restructure, organisational structure within Tennis Australia and probably if anything a philosophical structure Um, and what they wanted to do really I guess was sort of streamline a lot of the performance programs, pathway programs. Um, and through that process, um, Aaron decided to move on um, and so that opportunity to be in the Davis Cup space presented itself and um, I was very fortunate by that stage to have already worked with Leighton, um, particularly his last two years along with his other trainer and I was more or less just, I guess, filling the gaps with Leighton when he was in Melbourne. He spent a lot of his time up in Sydney. Um, so I had a really good relationship with Leighton and I admired Leighton for who he was and the athlete that he was and, and particularly the successes that he had. And so, um, you know, I, I remember one day with Leighton, you know, we'd all admired Leighton, particularly if you're a tennis fan, you know, to have Leighton sort of come up to the gym and, you know, say, boobs, which is my nickname, he said, uh, you know, take me for a session, throw everything at me. So, oh, okay. And you're sort of a little bit reluctant, oh, hell, I don't want to injure you, but how much do I give you? And he just said, mate, you just dish out whatever you've got. So I remember we went to the back of the MCG and I'd, I'd done a couple of boxing sessions and I got into Leighton and it was good fun um, and Leighton's great. He doesn't give anything away. You think, is he really working hard? Or you, but you've, I know for a fact that I was absolutely given everything I got in these boxing sessions because I was gassing but he just gave nothing away. I thought, man, this guy it's true what they say about it. like he is unbelievable just his work rate and his focus so anyway i thought oh, let's try something different so um and i think might have been coming into a second to last season and uh, he just came down from sydney and sort of rang up and we planned a session together and i took him just to the back of the mcg there and there's this sort of road and i said all right mate what do you want to do um, this is prior to us going back then. he said, "No just i want to do a bit of running and all right so I took him out and we did these ten one hundred meter hill sprints um then we did these hundred meter running uh, backwards with medicine balls and just a whole heap of old school stuff and you know and and like that and again that 's me that 's not the scientific way it 's uh, you know this you 're talking to a you know grand slam former world number one champion of the sport you you, you listen but you you know, He knew his body as well as anyone, so I just dished out whatever he, he was prepared to do. And so there we are at the back of the MCG. I'm absolutely trying to crush him, and he's just unbelievable. So, you know, that was a really, really good experience. And um, and that's how I guess late night sort of built that relationship. And then once this opportunity came up, uh, and Jason Stoltenberg had just been appointed as head of professional tennis for men, um, and I worked really closely with Jace. Um and so Jason and I moved into that Davis Cup space. Um Jason was the head coach, Layton was the captain, and then I became the strength and conditioning coach. So yeah, my first Davis Cup was I think what well, we would have been against Slovenia, maybe like Slovakia mm-hmm. uh at um out at Homebush there. Yep. On grass. We had Bernard and Nick and um it might have been who else would have been? Thanassi might have been in there. Jordan Thompson, I think, made his debut. Uh, John Piers. So you know, it was a fantastic crew, uh, and it was it was a really great environment to be around. Lots of energy, a lot of history. And Leighton's all about tradition and history. So you know, if you grew up with tennis, particularly in the eighties and nineties, um, you know, at watching Leighton and, and those guys before him, Rafter and even Wayne Arthur's and all of those guys. It was just a surreal feeling to be a part of it. But at the same time, I also felt that I had an obligation to sort of uphold the standard and what values that Davis Cut was about. And that's about working hard. You, you know, you had Rochi out there as well doing his two-on-ones, you know, and just watching old Roach and just getting to know Roach a little bit at the dinners and just being around the core. It, uh, it was unreal.
1: What a cool experience that would have been. Mm. Were, were there anyone Was there anyone that really stood out to you for different reasons in terms of like what they brought to every session or how they trained and what made them, uh, I guess, really a, at the most elite level?
0: Yeah, look, I think Leighton being Leighton and, and, you know, Leighton wanted to bring a level of relentlessness into it be relentless, uh, win at all costs, um, you know, fight with grit, you know, all, all those real hardcore mm-hmm. um, training values that no doubt separates, you know, the best from the rest type thing. So, you know, he brought players in like John Millman, um, you know, you had super talent obviously in Nick and Thanasia and, and one year in Belgium we had uh, Popper and Alex Popper. In there we had Alex, Alex Demonar. And look, the two athletes in my mind that really sort of epitomised, not necessarily their skill, but just their whole attitude, was, mm-hmm. was certainly Milman. Mm-hmm. Um, just his work rate, his ethics, around um, what what it meant for him. And, and don't get me wrong, all, all those boys and everyone, support staff included. It meant a lot to be in that Davis Cup space, but you could see particularly with Milman and, and, and Alex Diemener. Yeah. Alex was a young guy coming through. I'd previously spent about a year or so on the road with him as as an underager coming through, and that's you know that was an amazing experience. To see where Alex today is doesn't surprise me or probably for that matter surprise anyone else where yeah. he's at right now. But they were the two that really stood out, and the reason why I think they stood out is, one, because of their whole um, attitude towards... They want to represent Australia, Mm -hmm. um, what the tradition of the Davis Cup meant to them. And and they had no doubt their own reasons as well. Um, But you you knew what you were getting out of those two each and every time.
1: I think that's really obvious just from the outside. You can say that those would be two guys that would epitomise really high quality just attitude and work rate and getting the absolute most out of themselves that maybe people that aren't the most naturally talented but they're, they're going a really long way maximising what they have um, just through that sheer attitude and when I see a kid or anyone that I work with that has that I, I just know that they're going to be great at whatever they do whether they continue on the tennis path or whatever, wherever they go in their life they continue with that sort of attitude
0: yeah yeah yeah. you're absolutely right Luke um, and you know the thing that stood out with Alex Demonar was this was a young guy and I was very fortunate uh, I was actually in Vancouver one year at a Challenger event and I got a phone call from um, might have been Pat about going down and playing a support role to young Alex and, and Alex Popper at the time down in Washington it was a lead up tournament grade one leading into the US Open juniors um, and at that point I think one of the coaches Phil Sickle had to go back to Australia and I was probably the only TA employee that was available there were others but i think that was available in their schedules to actually be able to fly down and just provide a bit of a duty of care because they were both under 18 at the time so i went down there and and what really struck me impressively about alex was just his maturity at that point uh as a 16 17 year old he took ownership um he was you know really clear on what he wanted to do and really respectful and just the language he used was all positive and but it was mostly geared around how do I get better. Mm. He asked questions. He was inquisitive about the whys of what I did. Um, and, look, I, I came in without not knowing Alex, to be honest. I'd heard of him. I'd sort of seen him from a distance at some junior tournaments. But when I actually had that privilege now to actually be in front of him and actually spend you know spend a whole week with him, it, you could tell that this kid was going places uh, and he had a real personal story behind it, one that I, I, I dare not share, that's for him to mm-hmm. to share. Um, and you could see that he had a real burning desire, a real burning desire to be the best he possibly could. And it wasn't about being the best in the world, I think, being the best he could would take him to be the best in the world and that's what really impressed me. So I watched him actually play Shepelov, it might have been, or Felix uh, in the semifinal and it was one of the greatest junior matches I've ever seen, just the fight between these two um, and just the the level was incredible. Um, Alex unfortunately lost um, but that whole week, like you look at the list now of who was in that tournament, you had Shapovalov, you had Felix. Uh yeah, Alex obviously Popperin in there, and there's probably one or two others I can't quite recall at this point, but I remember just watching the level across all of those matches Going, going, hey, this this is the future right here. And I think that year Alex goes on to play in Monocle and make Wimbledon final. So then to see him, you know, a year or so later in Davis Cup space, and he's you know, he's just like a sponge, he was just absorbing everything. And, and you talk about standout moments, perhaps even a breakthrough moment. And it wasn't necessarily during a tournament, it was actually at a, a camp. So we just finished up, uh, it might have been 16 or 17, 2016, 17. We just finished up the US Open. And it was actually the year that we played uh, Belgium in the semi final Davis Cup in Belgium. And we were at the US Open, and there was this camp. And this camp was at the John McEnroe Tennis Centre. Um, and it was indoor play. Partly um, because we were playing indoor clay uh, in in Belgium. And uh, I think Alex might have been an orange boy, I'm not sure, or he was just part of the squad. Either way, Leighton wanted him there to, because of his passion and his energy, and he, he, no doubt he could see something in him. And so um, Alex is playing points, points out of hand with Nick. And Nick, obviously, at that time was, you know, in a world of his own in terms of just, you know, stratosphere fear like tennis is unbelievable and mm. so his level was naturally high and then alex here you got this guy you, you either thought he's trying to make a really impression or this guy is genuinely seriously good and i remember they were playing points out of hand and and nick couldn't brush him aside like it was i, th- I think it might have been to 21 it was like 99 in all like, I mean, the level, his level just switched and you go, holy crap. Uh, like, his level just went up a notch, uh, and, which hadn't been there previously. It was good, don't get me wrong, but went up against Nick and to be able to match him. And Nick, no doubt, was, you know, um, unhinged at all. He was yeah. just all out. And yeah. so the le- and then to the point where Nick said, let's go again. Because so-
1: Nick, Nick's still a fierce competitor. Like people misunderstand him in, in that sense. He is a fierce competitor and does not want to lose to anybody
0: absolutely right and you know you talk about nick i mean i i I was was fortunate to have spent some time with nick in two different phases of his career as a as a 15 16 year old not not necessarily directly working with him but certainly around the environment that we were in and then um probably three phases when he had that breakout against rafa He, he came back probably six months later certainly a different person no doubt uh Which is unsurprising, and then obviously when I was in the Davis Cup space as well. So I sort of I was privileged to see Nick sort of you know emerge as this raw super talent at 15 to you know Davis Cup uh, you know servant to you know doing what he's doing now. So from a distance, I guess watching him now. But what I really you know Nick is misunderstood, and I'm only just talking from the experiences. So and I respect Nick uh yeah look no doubt he, he's, he's volatile um and that's what makes him unique i think yeah, i mean what he has is this amazing desire deep deep desire to really compete so when he needs to flick the switch you can flick the switch and I, I was very privileged to see a lot of that and some of the stuff he does on court is just phenomenal like um you just you just sit there and in awe of oh, man this guy is unbelievable so you know i was and, and nick does work hard don't get me wrong um mm-hmm. You know, Nick. Nick, in his own mind, no doubt, has a has a real high work ethic of when he wants to. Mm-hmm. So, and I think a lot of, particularly the public, they don't see that. Yeah. You know, and I, I did a couple of pre seasons with Nick. Um, and, and you know, when he wants to work, he can work. So, yeah. Look, you, you you sort of, you know, as probably no doubt anyone that has worked with Nick, you sort of sit back and see it from a distance now, and you go, oh, Nick, what are you doing? But but mm-hmm. then on the other side you understand what he's going through. I mean, he's a he's an exceptional talent, so mm-hmm. good luck to him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And no, I always wish him the best. Are there any, like, so when you're doing some standard tests like beep test or, like, 20-metre sprint, can you give anyone that's listening kind of a benchmark of what these guys are doing at that level with, like, a beep test score um, to kind of g- g- give us a sense of where they're at at that level and, and where we need to get to if we want to get closer to that elite level?
0: Yeah, look, the testing modalities or the battery tests that we used for tennis is, look, at the end of the day, it's, uh, in my opinion, it probably needs to be specific to the type of player. Mm. But if you're talking in a sort of an academy environment where you need to test holistically the group, then the beat test is a great standardiser. Um, so when we were at Tennis Australia, uh, when I was at Tennis Australia, you know, we rolled out the beat test. And, and someone like Jordan Thompson uh, hit 15s. Um, but then you look at his game style, and he's you know he's a counter puncher, mm. um, and so he, he his game is built on repetitiveness. His game is built on endurance. Um, so his work rate and his work capacity needs to be high. Yeah. Um, same with the uh, Blake Mott. I also where he got to about two twenty. You know he he ran a fifteen. But then you you look at guys like perhaps Thanasi might not necessarily have the the, the high capacity as as tomo in in the beat test and he might run a 12 13 but that doesn't necessarily say he's a bad athlete at the end of the day really it's just a measure of of of, um cardiovascular or aerobic power potential more than anything or at least where they currently sit at that point in time so for me i don't take too much out of it if you really want to talk specifics you could probably design one one test i used to run with the guys 3p 10 10 up 10 back or sorry 20 meter up 20 meter back test so mm-hmm. what that has is the, the speed element to it but also the change of direction element to okay. it which is critical in tennis as well
1: yeah demon i would be an absolute beast on that one yeah like yep. off the charts yep. right
0: yeah speed yep his, his repetitive yep. nature to be able to move from static to in range and back is phenomenal and then that's just his natural genetic makeup. Yeah, for sure. Um, and he's a light frame. Um, but no doubt, I look at him now and he's, he's certainly filled out since when I worked with him and that's that's natural and that's expected. Um, and look, I, I don't know what his current training regime is, but I, I always knew that Alex really thrived and felt that he got the best out of himself when he was doing a lot of running, mm-hmm. um, intervals. Um, and I think one key to remember if you're a developing athlete, not every – tennis player needs to run it's each to their own it's very individualistic but if you do decide to run get some qualified get a qualified coach to actually be able to prescribe because you know you, you got to try and avoid over injuries yeah. or overuse injuries
1: absolutely um are, are there any is there any advice that you would give on recovery um or, or things in that realm to help back up performance um, obviously tennis players are training twice a day at that level and day after day there's really not many days off what do you recommend in terms of recovery and, and those sort of tools to to keep going and backing up
0: yeah look I think th- there's two elements to recovery there's the physiological aspects of recovery the, the you know the windows of uh, recovery so you know we talk about replacing um, electrolytes and 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 uh, refueling, um, certainly protein intake within the first 6, 12, 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding that side of recovery is really important to refuel, I guess more or less, um, making sure that you replace lost fluids and you replenish depleted um, protein. Um, and so, you know, taking and, – and, and carbohydrates for that matter, particularly if it's been a hard training session. So understanding that, but that doesn't necessarily mean what works for one individual will work for another. I'd certainly advise getting some um, nutrition advice on that from a qualified dietitian or a nutritionist. Um, So that would be the physiological aspect of it in terms of just from a nutrition perspective. I guess then there's the emotional, mental side of it, just being able to decompress, Mm. especially after a loss. Um, The physical side of it. You know we talk about doing ice baths yep absolutely um you know again there's a certain window for that there's active recovery whether it's sitting on a bike which a lot of athletes do yeah that's become really common now yeah and the whole idea of that is to sort of um you know unload the lactate that's being built up to yeah. sort of stop the crystallization of muscle or the stiffness onset um which naturally results in doms delayed onset of muscle soreness and, and because the key is particularly in tournaments, is to be able to back it up again. So each athlete um, may choose to do a passive recovery, whether it's on a bike or a swim or a walk or just foam roll for that matter. Um, and then sleep. Um, sleep is probably perhaps the biggest one, um, and that's the ability to be able to just switch off. It's very difficult, particularly if you're playing late at night, and I get that. Um, but perhaps within that 24 hours, being able to program some sleep time in there and I'm not talking three-hour sleep, certainly there's enough evidence to suggest that a 10, 15-minute power nap during the day is is, is quite effective, um, but also making sure that you get your 8 to 10-hour sleep at night as well and, and creating a really good environment for you to be able to do that as an athlete is really important. And it's easier said than done, particularly when you're touring. So being you know exposing yourself to light is not ideal in that sense. So just where you can switch off m- mentally as well, emotionally, uh, being able to go to bed, and fall to sleep as quick as you can is, is, is probably a really important critical factor in, in the recovery process.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important advice and being able to, no matter where you are, travelling around the world and touring, just finding a structure and a system to be able to keep those habits going is I think going to give you a breeding ground to be really consistent in your performance and successful. Yeah. So all, all of these experiences, I mean, you've worked with, I mean, amazing athletes, you've experienced so many cool things, Um, And it's only recently that you really have created this foundation called Project Six, and um, it's really to help out disadvantaged kids um, in the Philippines, which is what we were touching on earlier, which is connected to your upbringing and how you came over from the Philippines um, as a young boy. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this came about and, and, and what's this all about and what does it mean to you?
0: Yeah, as I was saying from the very beginning, the whole, my whole life has been around, I guess, finding a true identity. Um, and that identity is more about understanding where I came from. And in some respects, the why. Why did I come from there and how did I end up here? Um, and by virtue of that, you know, I've, I've built this, I guess, sense of gratitude and appreciation, um, not just through. Th- experiencing understanding that but also through what my adoptive mother did she was involved in a a foundation or a charity uh, when i was growing up and she was a sponsorship manager and her work was around raising funds to um, support um, underprivileged children in the philippines um, support them through medical support education um, and she raised a s- significant amount of money over the years and, and to the point where she was able to bring um, children over for craniofacial surgery um, here in Adelaide, um, Who and she was able to do that by connecting with a very prominent surgeon here um, in, in South Australia, in Adelaide. So she left this legacy. Um, unfortunately, that legacy of hers was never really fulfilled, and, you know, as part of... That tragic experience of her passing away, one of my promises to her was that one day I would would continue that in some form or shape. Mm. Um, And so in 2017, as I was sort of going through this somewhat identity crisis, uh, I'll call it a really heavy reflection period, Mm -hmm. time. Um, And so in a nutshell, basically, I took my family over to the Philippines for the very first time as a, as a family, uh, my wife and my son, who Jensen, who happened to be four and a half years old. Hmm. Ironically or coincidentally the same age that I was yeah, really uh, when I was adopted as well and I'm, I have this really vivid memory of him standing in front of the orphanage um, and it just brought back all these wow. somewhat memories, yeah. uh, whatever memories I did have but the feelings and I just had this huge appreciation for the life I'd lived um, and that, for me, was probably the start of me wanting to do something, which I guess really then opened that door of repaying uh, my mother's um, promise or, or fulfilling my mother's promise of one day continuing her work. And and I immediately, when I was there, was what can I do to help? Um, and uh, you know, I remember from the orphanage to the Administration office, which was only about twenty meters. I was just frantically thinking, I've got to do something. i got to do something, and um, I was thinking, I don't, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a builder. I don't have those particular skill sets. Um, and just as I got into the door of the administration office, I sort of looked out the window and I saw a basketball court, and immediately I said, I could, I could probably offer coaching support if not sporting equipment. So I asked the question literally right there: what, what physical activity or what sports equipment? Do you have or don't you have, or what sports equipment do you require? And she said, we need everything, um, but we don't know if we can service it because we can't afford to get a coach. But certainly, we could do some basketballs. The basketball court was decrepit, mind you, and there mm. was no basketball ring. The court was there, so I, immediately I made a pledge to say, right, I'm going to donate uh, some basketballs, and then um, and then I said, look, I, and immediately I made the decision then to say, I'm going to come back and donate some more equipment. Um, And so I left that orphanage or left the orphanage with that in mind and for a couple of days I thought, how can I do this? I really want to do this. Um, And then I thought, well, probably the best way to do it, if I'm genuinely serious about it, is to commit to setting up a foundation charity. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do it right. I didn't want it to be a flash in the pan. Um, So I really planned it. Um, I spoke to a lot of people. And, I've, I, and I really wanted to define its function, more importantly. And I and so from there, I, I established Project 6, which is the district, mm. Project 6 uh, in the Philippines, in Quezon City. Um, and then I guess the next part of that was to identify how I could actually do that, and that was through the provision of providing sports equipment. So I started to raise money to get tennis equipment over naturally, Um and then the next part to that was to actually find people to service it so the first thing i thought of let's go over there as a coaching group firstly to sort of almost launch it and so i was very lucky very fortunate to have um andrew whittington come over who was a, a tennis player um who i would worked with and you know really great support and 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 he had a lot of i guess time for what i was trying to do and wanted to be a part of it so i was more than happy and then another guy called brett mcclellan who was a who was an under-14s Tennis Australia coach for boys um, who I had a previous relationship with when I was at Tennis Australia here in Adelaide. Um, And, you know, Brett was really passionate about the project that I was proposing to him and so uh, the three of us went over there. In fact, I actually first did it with Blake Mott, Mm -hmm. and Brett firstly so in our first year I took Blake Mott back there and we ran some clinics and donated a whole bunch of equipment and 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 then the second year I took Andrew over there and it's probably the second year that I said I'm going to really commit to this for the rest of my life Um, and so we started to put things in place and it started to gain momentum Um, unfortunately COVID struck and that sort of set us back for a couple of years but the whole purpose and certainly the whole foundation of what the charity is built on is on allowing kids to build an identity um, within themselves, uh, delivering a level of hope through sports yeah. uh, in the sense that sports can provide connection, uh, gives them a little bit of direction and purpose and you know understanding a skill set and teaching them those skills, the social integration of it all. Um, but on a broader level, it's – the narrative I've always wanted to talk about um, and, and and want to be spoken about in years to come is that if we can implement this program across multiple communities within orphanages and, and youth detention centres uh, and, and elementary schools in these sort of impoverished areas, the narrative is that one day hopefully that I will bump into one of these young people that um, – Years ago, had had experienced our programs um, and they found so much joy in it. they learned a lot, allowed them to connect. Um, and then from there, we were able to go off and, and achieve the things that they wanted to achieve and that's, you know, have the family of their own, get a job and then hopefully give back to their own community. So for me, that is the narrative I want to hear perhaps in five, ten 10 years' time um, and there's a long way to go. Um, it's an ambitious one, but I'm confident that just through commitment alone and, and a desire to really connect with that project in time, will that narrative will be told. I think the first step was to build the respect, though, within those communities. Um, what you find in a lot of those impoverished areas that everyone wants to do their part I wanted to be genuine and authentic about it. I wanted to really demonstrate that I was genuinely serious about helping them. Mm-hmm. So I went over there with the intent to just earn their respect. Mm-hmm. So I gave it everything I had with with Andrew and and Blake Martin in those previous years along with Brett that that you know we really went out of our way, um, happily went out of our way to just do what we could to give the kids a really good experience, but importantly build that trust within those communities to the point now where I just came back from a tour uh, about 10 days ago, which is where our Coach for Smiles tour, where I, I, this time took over some Australian footballers uh, from the Glenel Football Club here. Um, and we went over and ran a whole bunch of um, footy clinics, but also I ran some fitness clinics as well with tennis. And then we went and visited all the orphanages that we have partnerships with and just donated a lot of the equipment. That we had donated to us through our generous supporters. So and and just to listen to the kids and listen to the welfare star talk about how much this means to them, but more importantly, how much this just helps them enjoy yeah. their experiences because particularly, amazing, yeah. Yeah, particularly in the orphanage, um, a lot of these kids don't have much hope.
1: Yeah. This is this is amazing, Daniel. Like a lot of people talk about giving back and um I guess people get, uh, are not happy with government's involvement and they wish the government could do more. And I was talking about other people doing something, but look at you, you've just through your experience, you're actually being part of the change that you want to see in the world and giving back to these kids that, um, yeah, you have a connection through your, your change and your upbringing. And I think that's, that's really inspiring for people to go, you can actually do something, you can actually be part of the change. Um, and I think it's a really inspiring message for people here and I'd love to hear more about how it's actually changed you as an individual, like how you've changed through the experiences of, of giving back in the last year since starting the foundation.
0: I think oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I think um, the, the whole experience of, you know, th- th- there's a personal experience and I guess the personal experience is to reconnect from a a heritage point of view but then there's the greater connection of of giving back to the community um naturally there's a lot of meaning to it for me and and what it has has impacted me on is is just my outlook towards the challenges that I may face in life um it's also learned me it's also taught me to become a little more connected to the moment mm. uh, and, and not get caught up on the small things, which, you know, a lot of people will say. Um, but also it it, it it really wants me to – it's allowing me to connect more with people mm. uh, on a more meaningful level. That's something that I've really wanted to do. I I have this philosophy that particularly with the charities that, you know, particularly when it comes to physical activity, you shouldn't have to pay for it, like, to be able to inspire someone to go outside and have some fun doesn't should not cost money, um, but in saying that, there's elements that you can layer in there that can also not only allow them to go outside and and be active, but also teach them skills, and that's by providing sports equipment. So my whole philosophy is around about you know making sure that. That these kids have it, but importantly, that I, I connect with it and 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 really encourage the kids to be in that moment. And that's where you got to give yourself a lot. Um, I don't ask for anything. Absolutely, don't ask. I don't ask for anything in return from anyone that I take over, other than just just be yourself, give your time up. Um, but I really want the people that and and. That's the other thing too. The whole idea of the foundations is, is not about me. It's not about my story. Whilst the story helps to connect the meaning of it, it's about the children, it's about the communities, but it's also about the coaches that I take on mm-hmm. with me. I want them to have that experience of being able to give back and and using, I guess, the foundation as a vehicle for them to do that in their most natural, expressive way. And so I did that with these. And I want young people to do that um, where – And we talked a bit about it earlier that some young people feel a little bit lost Mm. Um, I see you know I'm a bit older these days and I I feel as a coach as well I've always seen that as a responsibility to help impact children and and young people through providing them experiences, experiences with mentorship, guidance and that's what I want this foundation to be able to do is give those opportunities to to young people to say "Come come and be yourself but also give back and and be in the moment over there. So I took these two young footballers over there, and I said them to them before. I said, "Look, you know, we're going to go to pretty harsh places. Mm. Um, you're going to see a whole range of things. Um, don't be deceived by what you see. It's it's the real world. You could be in one suburb that looks like Sydney, and then within a you know a suburb later, not far away from there, you'll be right in the thick of a third world country. Um, and you know, we saw a lot of that." And, and it was really interesting sort of listening on some of the conversations that was taking place between t- these two young lads and they said oh, I can't believe this this is real. Mm. I said mate it's, it is real this is this is what unfortunately is presented in this this life in this in this reality. So and I said look you know we can't fix the problems these are out of our control but what we can do is make an effort. Yeah, and absolutely. that's all I asked for is you make an effort to really appreciate and, and give it your all and, and they came out of that tour you know, one of the best experiences, but it's just not that. I don't want them just to feel good. I want them to to take some lifelong learnings from that. So, for me, that's that's one of the other objectives of the foundation is to provide young people that platform.
1: Yeah, it's so true what you're saying. I think because we grow up in such good circumstances here, we, we often forget um, how lucky we are in some ways, and if we can get if we can remind ourselves how lucky we are and to take on these opportunities which you've been talking about um, throughout this podcast, I think it's going to help us out a lot and when we can, giving back. And what's really speaking to me through this conversation is just your authentic nature through it all, your your passion to really be of service, your passion to really give back um, and listen to, to people and help the, the athlete or whoever's in front of you with their needs. And I think it's... um. It's a really inspiring message for anyone, any parent, any coach, or anyone looking to help out or provide some service to to the youth, or just anyone in general. Um, so I feel like there's there's so many key takeaways today, and it's been an absolute pleasure to to um, to listen to your story. And um, I'm I'm inspired myself to to be a better person, be a better coach, and, and give back where I can. And I guess what I want to wrap up with is. Is there a way that we can we can give to your organisation? Um, anyone listen, listening, is there like a link or is there a way to donate? Because um, I would love to through ATA to give back in some s- small way and, and how we can. Um, how, how do people? Can people access that? Is that something that you do?
0: Well, firstly, mate, thanks for having me on today. Um, It's been a real privilege to be able to sit here in the comfort of of you and the presence of you and and to talk about my experiences. So I really appreciate that and um, thanks for giving me the (laughs) airtime, mate. Um, For people that are interested potentially in in the foundation and helping us out, they can visit the foundation's website on P6, as in the number Mm -hmm. 6F.org. So that's www.p6.org f.org no au and there's a donate link on the top top uh toolbar um, that they'll be able to link on and make a donation but but um if anyone actually wants to physically get involved by all means they can contact me uh, from the website and i'd be more than happy to have a chat
1: Mm -hmm. amazing amazing thanks again this has been an absolute pleasure pleasure thank you cheers